Right. At this point, the sermon officially begins. Preachers have to know that so that we know how much time we actually have. None of that introduction counted towards my time. Um, when it comes to understanding Islam, if we want to discuss Islam with grace and truth, we need a few things. First of all, we need a better understanding of what they believe. Because if we're ignorant to their primary convictions, we can't have a meaningful conversation with them. Um, we have to not only understand what they believe, we have to know why they believe it, and we have to know how they live it out. If we take the time to learn what they believe, what Islam teaches, we can have much better conversations with uh, Muslims, and we can have a much deeper appreciation and understanding for who they are and why they live that way, okay? Um, we are going to learn uh, more about Islam over the next two weeks so that we can better understand the way they view the world, we can better relate to them in general. We're going for understanding, we're going for love, and we're going for truth all at the same time. Um, let me pray, and then I'll give you an overview of their faith. Father in heaven, lay your hand of blessing upon this whole series. We want to grow as a church. We want to do better. This is our way of humbling ourselves, Father. Uh, this is not our way of uh, puffing ourselves up in pride and shouting from the rooftops who we think we are. Lord, far from that. This is our this is our way of lowering ourselves down to the ground and asking that you would show us how our truth applies today. Show us the heart of other people of other faiths and help us, Lord, to respond with love. Help us to be effective in every conversation we have. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me give you an overview because I think a lot of people don't know the basics um, of Islam. So we have a picture here of a large group of um, Muslims on pilgrimage. Uh, we're going to put that up there. There you go. So uh, Islam teaches that there is one true God. We have that in common with them. They believe God raised up many prophets to reveal his will. They believe that Adam was a prophet, Noah, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac, his sons, Jacob, Job, Moses, Jonah, Aaron, Solomon, David, and Jesus were all prophets of God. Their faith started with our book. Um, Islam is one of the three major monotheistic faiths, meaning belief in one God, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So we have a lot in common with them. But they believe the Bible was changed and corrupted while it was being written and after. They aimed, therefore, to bring people, including Christians and Jews, back to the one true God. So the Quran was written to replace the Bible as the final revelation of God. Uh, when was it written? It was written 600 years after Christ. Okay, 600 AD. It was written 600 years after Christ, um, and it was written 600 miles away from where Christ lived in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so 600 years after Christ, 600 miles away, um, a man named Muhammad decided that our faith needed to be fixed and our book needed to be upgraded. Um, that's where Islam began. Muhammad was the founder of Islam, he was born in A.D. 570. He lived in today Saudi Arabia. It was at 610 A.D. when he was 40 years old, meditating in a cave, that he says the angel Gabriel appeared to him. He was terrified, and he was compelled to recite a teaching that was given to him. And uh, Muslims teach that that teaching was um, with God. It was eternal. It was on a, um, a golden. Um, it was on a golden plate, and it was given from the angel to the prophet to be given to humanity. Um, 
Muhammad had many spiritual encounters like this one over a 20-year period, and his uh, teachings, his oral teachings, would then later be written down, and that would become the Quran. The creed of Islam, the confession of faith that they make at the beginning is, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad his messenger. That is their creed of faith. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad his messenger. Major tenets of Islam would be called the five pillars. Um, the five pillars are the confession of faith, which is what I just shared with you, uh, the five daily prayers, fasting during the month of Ramadan, giving to the needy, and pilgrimage to Mecca. Those would be their five pillars. You know, we have our four pillars. You know, they, they would say, here are our five pillars of faith, things that are foundational to every Muslim's practice of Islam. There are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and rising. It's about a one quarter, 25% of the whole world population. It's the second largest world religion, which is impressive because it's the youngest major world religion. So we're talking about uh, what 25% of the world would hold dear to their hearts. So there's a picture, again, uh, of Muslims on pilgrimage. Show that first picture again. Um, this is the faith. This is the life. This is the belief and the heartbeat of uh, a quarter of the world. And uh, we have a large Muslim population in Illinois, in Chicago, and even close by. Here's a picture um, of Toyota Park in Bridgeview. There were 15,000 Muslims who gathered for a festival um, recently. Um, so there are a lot of Muslims right around us, and you're going to have the chance to interact with them um, in many ways. Now, when we talk about the truth of Islam, we have to learn to speak the truth about Islam. You can write that down. That's your first point. We must speak the truth about Islam. That requires that we know the truth um, in order to speak it. And that requires that we have the courage to say the truth that we know about the faith. When I say the truth about Islam, we have to be very careful here because the truth about Islam is found in its founder and in its foundational teachings. That is the truth about the faith. Um, the same can be said of our, of our faith. The, the truth about Christianity is contained in our founder and in the foundational teachings of our faith. If we don't focus on the founder and the foundational teachings, what do we look at? Well, then we're looking at the many, many, many groups of followers and how they're living. Okay, but the many groups of followers who are living out Islam do not define Islam. Okay, there are many groups of Christians that we could list throughout history who have lived out the Bible in different ways. They don't define our faith. Our founder and our foundational teachings are the definition of the faith. Next week, we'll spend a lot more time understanding the many different groups of followers of Islam and how they live out their faith in a different way and how that lines up with their founder and their foundational teachings. But we can't get into, we can't make a mistake and say we're going to define Islam by all of the followers or those who we've seen or those who are the loudest. That's a mistake. You can't define the faith by the followers. So we're going to look at the founder and the foundational teachings. Um, the truth about Islam is it came about 600 years after our book. It grew straight out of our book, and it was intended to correct and update and replace our book. Okay, that's the truth. Um, Galatians 1.8 would be the initial response to anybody who attempts to do this. We'll put that verse up on the screen. It says, but if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Um, because of the angelic origin of the faith of Islam, uh, they would say, uh, Islam teaches that it has supernatural origin. And what we would say is, even if it does, our Bible still prevents anyone 
Uh, notice how the Apostle Paul says, even if we, even if me, an, a divinely authorized messenger, began teaching you a different gospel than I've been given, I'm cursed. And even if an angel shows up, so he says that the gospel that we believe, the word that has been handed to us, has come from heaven. Everybody who passes it on is responsible to not change it. So Galatians 1.8 um, would be the biblical response to anyone saying that there's a new revelation, a new book, and yours is old and gone. Uh, I want you to understand that when it comes to the truth about Islam, um, Islam changes the biblical teaching on every major area of doctrine. It's very... It's in and it's popular today um, to say, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing. How many of you have heard somebody say that to you before? All religions basically teach the same thing. They're, they're the same. And if you press that and say, no, they're not the same, they're very different. Buddhism believes that I'm not even alive and existing right now. So it's different. Um, then they would say, well, you know, if somebody believes that, it can be true for them. Okay, so those are the two major uh, things that are being shouted from the rooftops today. All religions are the same, and even if they're not, they can both be true at the same time. What I want to show you this morning is Islam and Christianity are not the same at all, at all, and they both can't be true at the same time. They're not the same, and they can't both be true at the same time because they teach different things about every major area of doctrine. Uh, let's zero in on four major topics here. You can write this down. Let's talk about our God. Let's talk about our God. When it comes to God, um, the teachings of Islam have changed what the Bible says about God. Um, Allah is removed. Our God is relational. You can fill that in. That's a basic distinction between uh, the God of Islam and the God of the Bible. Allah is removed, and our God is relational. We believe, according to the Bible, that we can know God personally. All throughout the Bible, if you think back even to the Old Testament, Genesis uh, chapter 3, God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the morning. He's walking with man. He's inserting himself into the creation. Um, but the Quran knows no such God. God. Their God would never do that. They see that as an act of weakness and limitation, uh, that he would come down. Allah, they would say, is greater than that. He is higher than that. And he would never stoop to enter into this world. Um, our God appears to Abraham, speaks to Moses through the burning bush, thunders to his people from Mount Sinai. Um, and the whole message of our book is that God has been engaged in a relationship with humanity from the beginning, and everything he's doing, uh, start to finish in the Bible, is his effort at restoring that relationship with man and making it permanent in paradise forever. If you read through the Quran, though, God, uh, Allah is not present in the garden. He does not come down. He speaks from afar, from behind a veil. God, their God is not present in paradise. He is not with them. It's an earthly place filled with earthly pleasure, but God is not among them. Their God is absent in Eden, absent in paradise. He is not knowable. Um, but we believe we can know God, and we believe we were created to know God. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, we'll put this on the screen, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Our God is relational, but Allah is spoken of as being distant and removed, far above the earth, behind a veil. Because of this, Muslims boast that their God is greater, and in his greatness, uh, he would not stoop to do things that the Bible says God has done. The Quran denies that you can know God personally. 
God never reveals himself, meaning his character or his heart, to his people throughout the book. Now, you might say, well, is this fair? Are you fairly characterizing this faith? Or, well, what I'm doing is I'm drawing from the Koran and their most trusted historical sources. Okay? So this is what they believe. Even their uh, well-respected theologians of today admit this is true. Um, there's a quote from a man named um, Ismail al-Faraqi who says this, Allah does not reveal himself to anyone in any way. Allah reveals only his will. Allah does not reveal himself to anyone. That is the great difference between Islam and Christianity. This is what they believe. Um, in fact, uh, the, the word Islam means uh, submit. Uh, your entire relationship to Allah is one of submission to a divine will. You have no personal relationship with him. You know his will. You do his will. That's what you get. So their God is very different from our God. Their God is removed. Our God is relational. Um, in fact, the very nature of their God is different from ours. According to Muhammad himself, the verse that is most important to recite is chapter 112 in the Quran, And that basically says that uh, God is not a father. He has no son. There is none and nothing like him. Okay, let me say that again. God is not a father. He has no son. There is none and nothing like him. Now, you have to admit, as a Christian, Christian, that our God is a father, and he has a son. And if you take his fatherhood or his son away from him, you take our God away. So they're not the same, and they can't both be true at the same time. This is the truth that we have to know, we have to understand, if we are going to have important, meaningful relationships. Um, Romans 8.15 describes the relationship we can enjoy with God the Father. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That relationship can be enjoyed by people who seek God. That's God's will. Um, listen, knowing the truth about what uh, the Quran teaches about God, that should fill us with compassion. Because we understand that followers of Islam, 25% of the world are serving a God they can never and will never know. 25% of the world, they cannot know God. They will not know God in this world or in the next. It's impossible. That should stir our hearts with compassion and prompt us to bring them a message about a God who loves them and who has displayed that love from Eden and will display that love throughout all eternity and who invites them into a personal relationship with himself. Okay, so 600 years after our Bible, 600 miles away, the Quran changed our understanding and definition of God. Um, next, let's talk about our founder. A new founder emerged. They would call Muhammad the uh, final messenger and the one who bears the supreme divine message um, to the world. So a new founder emerged. Let's talk about their founder. Um, the founder of Islam lived by a different moral code. You can write that down. He lived by a different moral code. Um, Muslims, if you talk to a Muslim, you'll understand very quickly that they are not told the truth about their founder. Um, they don't read the history books for themselves. Um, where they get their information is from the Quran, but then there's also this large collection of historical books called the Hadith. Um, some of the Hadith, they, they would all agree are not relevant. Some of them, they would all agree are fairly relevant. Some of them, they would say, are the most trustworthy. So this would be like, to the Christian, this would be like a combination of the writings of the early church fathers, okay? Um, 
We'll see in a bit, though, that they view the Hadith as, uh, in many ways, as authoritative as the Quran, because they need a lot of that information for their foundational practices. But what we learn from Muhammad comes from the Quran and from the Hadith, the early history books. These books were written anywhere from 100 to 200, 250 years right after Muhammad's life, so they were very close to his life. They weren't written, uh, you know, much later. But we learn from the Hadith and from the Quran that the founder of Islam lived by a different moral code. Um, and Muslims are not taught the truth about their founder. We know that they're not taught the truth about their founder because even the first, and they would say the most reliable biography of their founder's life, admitted in the beginning that they changed the truth to make it more bearable. Uh, let me read to you the introduction of the first and most reliable biography of the prophet written a hundred years after his life, the author says this, things which it is disgraceful to discuss, matters which would distress certain people, and such reports as my teacher told me he could not accept as trustworthy all these things I have omitted. That's a blatant admission that the life of Muhammad has been edited and has been cleansed of things that are objectionable. The very first biographer of this man's life had to apologize for the fact that he couldn't write it accurately. Um, the Muhammad written of in the Muslim history books built violence into his new faith. Um, the first account of Muhammad doing something violent would be when he raided a group of Meccan Arabs who were on pilgrimage. It's called the Nakla Raid. This was viewed as a great sin in the day by all Arabs of the time because there was a truce among all the fighting Arab parties during times of pilgrimage. Um, but he had his followers disguise themselves as those who were going on pilgrimage and they attacked people who, um, uh, who were innocent. That was um, considered a sin at that time. So he was violent from the beginning and his violence was not only defensive, it was offensive, including the first raid he ever made. Um, he sold also captive children into slavery. So when he finally had a bigger army and they went out on raids, they would uh, kill the men and then they would capture the children and the women and sell them into slavery. There was even um, sexual exploitation that he urged upon his soldiers. He urged his soldiers to rape captive women in front of their husbands. This is documented in their own history books. Um, one account says that he ordered a mother of five killed while she was nursing her baby and the blood splattered on her children. This is their own history books. Muhammad lived by a different sexual code. He had 13 wives, um, many of them at the same time. Historians say, Muslim historians say that he took a bride who was six years old. He was active with her when she was nine and he was in his 50s. This is a different moral code. He also compelled his adopted son to divorce his wife so that Muhammad could marry his own daughter-in-law. This is a different moral code. Um, their founder also established the death penalty for leaving the faith. Um, the only penalty if you left the faith was death. You might say, well, that was then, this is now, but all four Sunni and all three Shia groups today, major schools of thought, teach that those who leave Islam must be killed. Most Muslims today live under the threat of violence. They can't leave the faith and it's because of their founder. Listen, they can't leave the faith, and it's because of their founder. When um, Nabil Qureshi went to a Muslim conference back in 2009, he ran into a few childhood friends, and he went out to dinner with them. They caught up. You know, they were buddies growing up. 
And uh, he noted in one of his books that this particular friend came from a peaceful form of Islam. And they talked about many things, and they said it was a normal conversation, you know, and Nabil shared his testimony. But at one point, he said, hey, what do you think about the fact that if you convert, you have to die? I mean, do you think that that still applies today? And his friend looked him right in the eye and said, that's what the prophet taught. And, Moha- and uh, Nabil said, so if we were in a Muslim country today, you would kill me right now. And his childhood friend said, if we were in a Muslim country today, I would kill you right now. This is not made up. This is their founder. This is in their foundational teachings. This is what is consistently applied to most Muslims today. They can't leave or they die. And their founder is the one who put that into practice. So you just have to understand that the truth is their founder lived by a different moral code, but they are not taught this version. It's, they can find it. They can open up the history books for themselves, and those who do are shocked and disgusted. It doesn't take long for them to find out the truth for themselves. But what they are taught at the common level is that Muhammad was the man who attained perfection. He was the exemplary man of God, and we should aspire to live in every way like him. And I would just say that their own history books teach us otherwise. Their founder lived by a different moral code. You can write this down. Our founder proved to be sinless and divine. Sinless and divine. Um, I'm not trying in any way to like, you know, show our faith is better than their, our founder is better than their. I'm just trying to show you that their founder is exactly the same as everyone else in this room in nature and essence, no different. Our founder is divine. He's very different. Our founder proved sinless and divine. It's important that you learn to talk about our founder as being different than their founder. Why? Not so that you can show that you're better or anything, but because (laughs) our founder is the only thing that makes our faith different in this world. It's not our followers. We got a lot of followers who are out there, all right? We've got a lot of denominations. We've got a lot of baggage in our church history. If you compare their followers to our followers, it's going to be trouble. But our founder, he is what makes our faith different than any other faith on this planet. He alone is perfect and divine. It's Jesus who makes us different. Jesus also had a different track record with sin. He was subjected to seven trials before his crucifixion. Seven times. And there were seven times that he was declared innocent or not guilty or free of guilt. Seven trials by people who wanted to kill him. They found nothing. Seven times he was declared not guilty. In Hebrews 4.15, it says this of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived a sinless life. He never sinned once. An angry mob of powerful religious leaders tried their best to get anything they could on him, and they found nothing. He lived a perfect, sinless life. This wasn't only the testimony of his friends. This was the testimony of the courts. This was the testimony of his enemies. And most importantly, this was the testimony of God himself. There is no such testimony um, of Muhammad. In John 10.30, Jesus also claimed to be much more than sinless. He claimed to be divine. Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Um, If you talk to a Muslim, they'll often say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That was something that was added later. But if you take them to John 10, 30, it was very apparent. Jesus did claim to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. 
And the context proves that that is exactly what he meant because in verse 33, they picked up stones to kill him. You die right now. And he said, for what miracle are you about to kill me? And they said, no, it's because you, a mere man, make yourself God. So he blatantly claimed to be God. So our founder proved sinless and divine. He said it, God said it, his followers said it. Um, Here's what we need to understand. You have to know that followers of Islam must look away from their founder to pursue a peaceful and righteous path. They have to look away from their founder to pursue a peaceful and righteous path. Um, They have to explain away his indecencies and his blatant sins, but their longing for a true example a peaceful, sinless example, one who has attained and displayed perfection will only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the example their hearts are longing for. And that's the example that we find written in the pages of Scripture. So that's, they changed the teaching about our God. They changed the teaching about the authoritative founder and messenger of God. Let's talk about our book. Uh, You can write that down. Let's talk about our book. They brought a very different book into being, and they say that it is the final and full authority of of God. Um, In order to understand the Quran and how central and important it is to Muslims, you have to know that the Quran isn't their Bible, it's their Jesus, okay? You have to understand that. The Quran to them is, is the physical manifestation of the eternal word of God in this word. It is their Jesus. So that's why when you talk about their book, um, that's why that, their level of devotion and affection for that book is so high because it's not just their Bible, it's their Jesus. It's God manifesting himself in this world. Okay? Let's talk about the Bible so that we can compare the two. The Bible, we would say, is God-breathed. You can write that down. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. So we believe that this book um, is divinely inspired. What we have here is from the very lips of God. God breathed it out. That's the um, doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Inspiration doesn't mean like, like, you know, Bono got inspired and wrote a song. I'm so inspired, you know. Inspiration means that uh, the Holy Spirit spoke through the biblical authors. That's inspiration. 2 Peter 1.21, he said, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God did this not by taking control of the mind or the heart or the soul of the messenger or the prophet. He did this by making it flow through the person without coercion um, naturally. He's able to do that. The prophecy to the New and the Old Testament authors did come in many forms, in dreams and visions, uh, spoken. Um, It was also through the natural discourse between churches Um, But the point is, it was God all along who was speaking through um, his authorized messengers. Um, Next, the Bible is sufficient for all. This is a very important thing to realize. The sufficiency of Scripture means that in our founder and in our book, we have everything necessary for life, faith, godliness, and salvation. It's all here. We don't need another person. We don't need another book. It's all here. The Reformation came about because in the Catholic Church, they started teaching, we need more books, and we need more voices, and we need more authoritative writings, and the Reformers said, no, this book alone is necessary for salvation and life and faith and godliness, all right? So this is what we would call the closed canon. Um, The Bible is sufficient, 
which means it's great if you get a study Bible, but the notes that are written at the bottom of your Bible mean nothing. They could be right, they could be wrong, they could be helpful, it doesn't matter. You don't need them. Everything you need for life, faith, godliness, and salvation is in our book and our founder. Um, you can also write this down. The Bible is preserved by God. It was preserved, meaning it was copied and handed down and compiled by God. Um, no one man had power to grab all the books of the Bible and tamper with them. But what Muslims believe is, they believe that our Bible was tampered with. They target Paul in particular. They think when Paul came along, um, he changed the teachings of Jesus and the early disciples. They would say that Paul made Jesus God. They would see that Paul is the one who uh, altered our scripture. And then even after that, it was changed in transmission. But they don't think what we have is the original word of God. They think Jesus worshipped God and would never expect people to worship him. They think Paul came along and changed all of that. The question is, do they have any evidence for that? And the answer is no, they don't. 600 years after our book was written, 600 miles away, they don't have any evidence or reason that they can change eyewitness testimony that was written down in our book. Um, it would take a lot, 600 years later, 600 miles away, to be able to change eyewitness testimony of anything that's happened in this world. Um, but we know from what the Bible says that their accusation that Paul changed our Bible contradicts his motives. Um, he had all the power he needed. He, he walked away from that and faced great persecution, almost dying several times. If he was after power and control, he would have stayed where he was. He wouldn't have converted. We also know that Paul was humble. He humbled himself before the disciples when he found them. He didn't try and rise up over and topple them. And we know that in his doctrine, he does not change anything that the other apostles have said. So their claim that Paul changed the Bible contradicts what we find in there. It also contradicts that the Bible was written by first-generation believers and eyewitnesses. Paul did not have the ability to change what Peter had to say. Peter was an eyewitness. He could write whatever he wanted. No one man could control all of the New Testament. It was decentralized. The letters were sent out to many churches, and they were put in circulation. Even different groups of copyists were in charge with different parts. They spread out all over the region, and then it was only much later all these copies were found and brought back. And they were found to be so reliable um, the New Testament, all the copies that were brought back were 97 and 99% um, accurate over one another, even though no one person had their hand on it. What we see there is that the Bible was a book that was miraculously preserved and transmitted down by God. Um, in addition, the very teachings of Islam also discredit the view that Paul changed the Bible because the Quran itself says that the Bible was a reliable book. And so it was only later that they said it had been changed when they realized that they didn't find in it what they thought they would. So the Bible is God-breathed, sufficient for all, and preserved by God. Um, let's talk about the Quran. You can write this down. The Quran was different. Um, it was handed down in a mystical and erratic manner. The way that Muhammad got the revelation was unusual. It was mystical and it was erratic. As the story goes, the prophet received the message from an angel who identified himself as Gabriel. How did this relationship unfold? Um, Muhammad reported feeling threatened during the revelation, squeezed and pressed. Um, it was coercive. It was, it was harsh. It was oppressive. He was forced to recite what the angel was giving him. Um, because of it, he struggled emotionally and mentally um, in between these times of revelation. Several times, the early and most reliable forms of um, uh, history of Islam say that 
Mohammed struggled with suicidal thoughts and he would climb up to the top of a mountain aiming to throw himself off and kill himself. And then the angel would appear to him and give him another revelation. It's very unstable. When he would recite these revelations to his followers, sometimes they reported he would enter into a trance-like state and begin sweating while talking. It was a very erratic and a very mystical way that he got and that he transmitted his revelation. In addition, he would admit that he forgot certain parts and people had to remind him. He would also from time to time change something he had said before and delete it and update it and say, this is the new way that we should say this. It was erratic. It was mystical. It was unusual. We also know that the content itself that eventually got written down was questionable. Muhammad or later authors drew, we know, from at least three gospels that are not in the Bible. Um, He cites, uh, there's a There's a false gospel of Thomas, there's a false infant gospel, Arabian infant gospel, and there's a Gnostic gospel, and contents from these books are put into the Quran as if they're biblical. So we would say that the spiritual spiritual source was unusual. The spiritual source of his revelation was unusual and seemed oppressive. And we would say that the textual sources that he cited lack credibility. So the Quran was mystical and it was erratic in where it came from and how it came about. You can write this down. The Quran is also not sufficient for all. Um, Islam does not teach that the Quran is the only book that Muslims rely on for life and faith and godliness and salvation. They need other books to help them understand the Quran. We know this because their five pillars, some of the contents of their five pillars aren't even found in the Quran. You have to look to the Hadith to get the number of prayers. Okay, so you need to look outside of the Quran to find some of their core uh, principles. Why is that a problem? Why is the fact that the Quran is not sufficient a problem? Because if you need other books, who decides which other books you need? There's no end to the debate in Muslim circles over which books you need and which books you don't. This has led to the schisms in Islam. This has led to the major civil wars in Islam. They can't agree what other books they need because they haven't settled on the Quran as being sufficient. It's a huge problem in their theology. It's not sufficient alone, and it's not sufficient for all people. Um, Muslims are taught that the Quran is only truly fully discernible in its original language. So if you don't know the original high classical Arabic, you really don't know what the Quran says. And very few people understand that uh, ancient high form uh, of Arabic. So when they recite their book, they don't know what they're saying. If you grew up in the Catholic Church years ago, maybe you remember when the Masses were in Latin. Maybe you remember not understanding anything that was being said. Um, That is how their faith is practiced. They say things that they don't understand in a language they can't comprehend. Therefore, the way that they use the Quran in their daily devotion is mystical. It's not cognitive. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what the verses mean. They don't know what they mean in context. It's simply in saying them that they get credit in Allah's sight, okay? So it's not sufficient. The fact that they believe you need to know high classical Arabic to understand the message installs a massive racial border in its own defense. They'll often use that. If you say, well, how can you defend what Muhammad has done or said? They'll say, well, if you don't know Arabic, you don't know the Quran. See how there's a massive racial border they put up, and nobody can get over that. So they put it up as a protection to eliminate scrutiny of their beliefs or their founder. Because the Quran also has to draw from historical books, these books were written 200 to 250 years after Muhammad's life. The Quran can't stand alone. It's a problem because they don't know which books are legit and which aren't. 
and they often decide on a matter of convenience. If you say, well, the prophet's life was described here as being horribly violent, they say, well, that, that's bad hadith. Well, who decides what's bad hadith and what's good hadith? Each individual scholar. There is no consensus. So the Quran is not sufficient for all, leaving it open to a world of problems in reaching other people with the truth and even understanding it among their own people. The Quran is a different book. It's mystical and erratic. It's not sufficient for all. And you can write this down. It was compiled and authorized by force. By force. They will all, uh, they, Muslims will often accuse the Bible of being tampered with and they'll say you can't trust it. But when you apply that same measure of scrutiny to their book, um, it becomes very clear that they don't allow that scrutiny to, to look at their book. They're fine with scrutinizing the Bible according to a certain rational measure, but you're not allowed to do that with the Koran. Um, we know that the Muslims are not taught the truth about their book. Okay? When I was at Oaklawn High School, we were doing an outreach rally there with uh, ISP, and some of our high schoolers invited me to go and speak there, so I shared the gospel. And at the end, there was a Q&A, and there was a group of about 15 or 20 Muslims off in the corner. And so, Q&A, you can ask any question you want. So somebody raised up their hand and asked a question about the Bible. How can you trust the Bible if it's been changed throughout the ages? And I said, well, if you look at how the Bible was copied and transmitted, there's no other book like it in ancient history. It is the best preserved book in all of human history. And Muslims all looked at me and said, no, that's not true. And one boy in particular said, no, the Quran is. And I said, well, tell me the story of the Quran. And he said, the prophet dictated the book to the scribes. We've had one copy from that point on. Okay, that's what they're taught. That's not what their history books say. They're not taught the truth about their book. What is the truth? And so I was talking to a girl after this, and I said to her, um, her name was Yara. I said, Yara, I just want you to research your own history books. I want you to go in and dig down, and I want you to find out what the fourth successor of Muhammad did to the Quran. Okay, and I need you to agree right now that if you find out that he changed it, that that qualifies as being tampered with. Okay, yeah, I'll look into it. So I just told her to go and read her own history books. What you find in the Muslim history books is this. The first successor of Muhammad, his father-in-law, ordered that Muhammad's teachings all be written down. So Muhammad didn't write it down. Okay, that's important. And he didn't dictate it to a certain group of scribes who wrote it down. There were individual followers who had written down his oral sayings on anything from a leaf to a, you know, they wrote it down all over the place. Some of them memorized all of his sayings, okay, so it was mostly oral. And because of the Civil War, the, his father-in-law feared that the, that, the, um, that the teachings of Muhammad would be lost. So he said, let's all write it down. But it happened later, and the process was not a flawless process. There is great evidence of human error. They admit that they lost chapters. There was a whole chapter that got eaten by a goat and nobody else had it, okay? This is their history books. There's also conflicting testimonies of one person saying that Muhammad said it this way and another person saying he said it that way. There were also debated portions. So they, but they compiled it and they got the first copy done and then they handed it to one of Muhammad's wives. It was controversial and there were other versions of the Quran out there. Because even some of the closest followers of Muhammad, in fact, the man who Muhammad himself said was the best reciter of the entire, uh, of the entire Quran in its verbal form, disagreed, disagreed with how it was being written down. Okay, that would be like Paul saying, I disagree with the Bible and I'm telling everyone right now, this New Testament is not done right. Okay, that's what happened. They admitted later that they forgot a part. So the third successor 
recalled it, or the fourth, recalled it and reissued it, okay? And then he destroyed all other versions of the Quran that were in circulation, and he mandated by death that one be followed. He mandated by death that one be followed. Okay, do you see there's an orchestrated destruction of the variants? One man brought all the copies in one place, decided what got in, burned the rest by fire, and then sent it out and said, if you don't follow this version, you die. If that's not tampering, I don't know what it is. I don't know what you would call that. Okay, but that's exactly what they accuse uh, Paul of doing to our Bible, tampering with it. But they're not taught this truth. It's very easy for them to read it. They don't have to dig. They can look at the most reliable early sources to find out this is exactly what happened to their book. That doesn't mean their book isn't true. It can still be true. It just means it's not lining up with what they're taught about their book and their prophecy and their revelation. And in the end, because the Quran has been edited and changed, because the story of Muhammad has been edited and changed, and because they can't agree on which parts of the Hadith do and don't apply, there can't be consensus. So their book was compiled and authorized by force. It's not sufficient for all. It's mystical and erratic. Um, we need to understand the truth, not so that we can be like, you know, arrogant or pompous or anything or claim that our book is better or whatever. We just have to know the truth so that we can help them to see that this is what your book says. This is what your founder says. This is what your historians say. What are you going to do about that? We have to expect that they can be honest about their own writings, their own founder, their own foundational teachings, and their own foundational uh, documents of history. Because if they can't be honest about that, then what is there to talk about? But we have to understand the truth if we're going to actually have a meaningful conversation. So um, Islam, the teachings of Islam have changed the view of God, the view of the founder and most authoritative messenger of the faith, the view of the book, which book do we listen to, and most importantly, write this down, the solution, our solution. What is the Muslim solution to the human problem? Um, Islam doesn't teach original sin. They would believe that man is weak and forgetful, but not fallen. So they aim to increase their relative goodness through ritual and through deeds. They believe you can earn merit before God, and if you follow his will, maybe you can become acceptable to him. It's a works-based righteousness that replaced a Christ-based righteousness 600 years after Jesus had risen from the grave. Um, what they believe is there's an angel sitting on your right, your left shoulder, and they are tracking everything you do, all of your deeds. Um, we have that in common. They believe that there will be a just record of your life kept. The difference is when judgment day comes, Allah doesn't need to care. He doesn't need to look at your record. He can admit anyone into heaven and paradise he wants. He can um, omit anyone from heaven or paradise he wants. He's that great. We would say that that's a deficient view of God's justice. And it's a far deficient view of his mercy. Um, we would say that a God who would know there is a record but not need to consult it leaves us wondering about how on earth we could ever please him. And the answer is Muslims don't know how they can please God. They don't have a workable solution to the human problem. So they try and earn as much merit as they can, and then they go off and leave this life with no assurance of heaven. No Muslim leaves this world being able to say they're going to heaven. None of them have hope that heaven awaits them. None of them. Write this down. Muslims believe you are saved through God's law. It's through rote obedience to Sharia law 
Islam means submission. So submission to the will of Allah that gives you the best chance at getting to heaven. You work and you worship not to know God or just love him, but to accrue credit so that perhaps he will let you into heaven. Um, you can write this down. Our solution is different. We believe you are saved not through the law of God, but through God's love. We believe you are saved through God's love. It is the mercy and love of God that he extends down from heaven that is our only hope and chance of getting into his paradise. We cannot ever do more good than bad. We cannot ever do enough ritual. Uh, our best rituals are filthy rags to a holy God. This is a big thing you have to understand. The standard of our God is greater than the standard of Allah. You need to know that. The standard of our God is greater because we believe when God looks into your heart, he must find perfection to let you into heaven. He will not take anything less than perfection. Good is not enough. You can never be good enough. Our God looks into the human heart and demands sinless perfection before you get into his holy kingdom. Therefore, his standard is greater than the standard laid out in the Quran. How can we actually attain to such a high standard? John 1.29 gives us the glorious answer. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God must take away your sin. You can never do it. If God doesn't take away your sin, you will die in it. The problem is, all Muslims believe Jesus didn't die on the cross. All of them. Here again, let me say this. When you hear all religions are basically the same, and if not, they can be true, both can be true, that just doesn't apply. How can 25% of the world's population say Jesus didn't die on the cross, and so many Christians say he did? Can it be true at the same time? He did die on the cross, and he didn't die on the cross. You're both right. Do you see how irrational that is? It's sentimental to try and say you can get along and believe what you want. It's not rational to say that a man did and didn't die on the cross. You can both believe what you want. It's not rational. They both can't be true. They think either Joseph of Arimathea or Judas died on the cross in Jesus' place, or some of them think that Jesus appeared to die on the cross, but, but Allah just deceived. He made it appear so, but he didn't actually die. And Allah miraculously sustained him through the cross, and then uh, he didn't come back from the dead. He just never died. He just came out of the tomb, and he never died. That's a problem, because we believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the payment, the final payment for your sin before God. Just like if you made car payments back in the day where you had to rip out a payment stub and send it in, and you got to that last payment, and you sent it in, and it was finished. Jesus is that last payment stub. He made the final payment for your sin by dying on the cross. And if you teach he didn't die, there's no payment for your sin God will accept. God expects more than goodness. He expects perfection. The only way he can find perfection in you is if the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world and even more so, because it's not just good enough for your sins to be gone, you have to be perfect in righteousness. Jesus enters into the life of his follower. Christ in us is our hope of glory. The only way God is going to look into your heart and find perfection is if he looks into your heart and finds his son. Jesus gives you his perfect righteousness. So that this is a mind-blowing thought. When God looks at you, he doesn't just look at you as if you have never sinned once in your life. He looks at you as if you have only always done righteous things. 
we certainly can say we don't deserve that verdict. That's why we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus is the divine Savior who gives us righteousness. To summarize, if we're going to speak the truth about Islam, we need to know that 600 years after our book was written, 600 miles away, they presented a very different view of God, the founder, the book, the solution. We believe that our God is relational. Our Savior is sinless and divine. Our book is God-breathed, sufficient for all, preserved by God. And we believe that you can be saved only through God's love. That is our gospel. We cling to it. It is still true today, and Muslims need to hear it. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about what happens to believers. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out in the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of the grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's an awesome truth, and this truth is a message for the world. It goes on to say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are challenged to go and make disciples of all nations. We are challenged to go and share with those who hold to a different view the truth of Jesus. So please understand that this message is a message for the world. They need to hear it in order to be saved. And understanding the roots of their founder and their faith makes it even more abundantly clear than before. They need Jesus Christ. Next week, we are going to talk about how we can speak the truth graciously we're also going to talk about terrorism and how that challenges us and makes us feel angry and violent and the right and wrong way to respond to that. We're also going to talk a lot more about answering some questions Muslims have about our, the followers of Christ. Okay, so that's all coming next week. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer.